Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I think I'm not alone. Down for 911, we're through emergency. Oh, this is Sandy. We're pretty one look. Talk to the road. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I wear a male car with his hands to a coffee table and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who would, who would, who would, who's, who's life would be. I'd harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount especially at first uh, enormous amount of uh, horror guilt remorse afterwards but then that impulse to do it again to come back even stronger edward jockey smith was short of temper and of stature a notorious tight ass eddie liked a bit of armed robbery drug dealing and murder his poor impulse control meant Eddie could turn a minor incident into a major spectacle. He was respected by the criminal fraternity, but his habit of shooting at police made him public enemy number one. Sean Vincent Gillis was a serial killer who murdered eight women in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He usually pulled zip ties around his victims' necks to incapacitate them before killing them, indulging in acts of necrophilia, and what he liked to call erotic dismemberment. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We have some new ones this week, so thank you to the lovely Tiffany. Fiona Griffin. Ems04. Mary Octoman. David Smith. Angie GX. Peter Dalzell, Fraser Hoare, Penny Sousa, Justin Spencer, Catherine McAndrew, Amanda Richards, and Tanisha Hine. Did you say it right this time? I think I did. You better have. She'll come for you. She's not afraid to come, come for me, you. Come at me, If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you will have access to dozens of other episodes, including our incandescent and bald early stuff. (laughs) As well as exclusive, uncensored, patron-only monthly episodes where we really let fly. And levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. And, of course, you're automatically entered into our monthly giveaways. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. 
At 1.30am on April 29th, 2004, Sean Vincent Gillis and his live-in girlfriend Terry Lemoyne were in bed asleep when a SWAT team swarmed their property. In an interview on the TV show Born to Kill, Terry said, They burst through the door, kicked in the doors of every room in the house, threw a smoke bomb in there, and a bunch of police officers came in and arrested Sean. Use the knobs. You don't have to kick in inside doors. They're not locked. Oh, right. Well, no. Use the knobs. No, they wanted to kick in the doors, obviously. Terry went on to say, I demanded to know what was going on immediately, and then they said... Don't you know you're living with a serial killer? Terry laughed incredulously and told them that they definitely had the wrong house and the wrong man. She knew her boyfriend of a decade would never do anything like that. Sean was arrested and taken into custody. He was charged with three counts of first-degree murder in the murders of Catherine Hall, Johnny Mae Williams and Donna Bennett Johnson. At the station, Sean not only confessed to the murders, but also revealed to investigators that he had murdered five other women. Terry followed them to the station and implored Sean to tell her it was just a misunderstanding and that none of the accusations were true. Instead, he nodded his head and said, I'm sorry, honey bunny, but yeah. I'm sorry, honey bunny, but yeah. No, your guy's the jockey. My guy's not a jockey. Yeah, baby. My guys, my guys, actually, I'll tell you what, my yeah, guys honey, like. Yeah, honey bunny, yeah, baby, I did it all. Pretty sure that's not what he said or how he said it, but, you know, thank oh, you. Oh, yeah, I talk like that too. I should point out that in interviews, Terry does not come across as a clueless woman. Like, she doesn't seem like, oh, he was killing people everywhere, whoops-a-daisy, didn't She's not notice. like you. She's not at all like me. She's calm and self-possessed and seems like someone you'd like if you knew her. No, Definitely not like no, me. No, no, no. Ten years earlier, in March 1994, Terry was working as a manager in a local convenience store when she was introduced to Sean Vincent Gillis. She told media, The feeling I got from him was more like a nerdy guy and safe. She went on to describe him as someone who's quiet, fun. He's a thinker. He's very intelligent. Very intelligent. Well, that's what Terry has to say about Sean. Personally, I think he looks like Ned Flanders, like a short, thin, murdery Ned Flanders. Well, that is terrifying. Oakley doakley. When Terry realised she had feelings for Sean, she decided to test his temperament to see if he was a violent man. She said, I started a fight one night and slapped him on purpose to see what his reaction would be. He stamped his foot and said, boys aren't supposed to hit girls and girls aren't supposed to hit boys. That's just the way it is. So I figured I was safe. Is this why women slap me on a first date? No, it's probably because you've said something just wrong to them. It's because I'm too lovely. Actually, yes, it probably is because you're too lovely. It isn't. It is. No, it isn't. It really is. It wasn't long before Terry moved in with Sean. He lived in a very nice house that his mother owned, but it was a mess with dirty dishes and crap everywhere. Terry figured the house and Sean just needed a woman's touch. My house looks like that and I live here with my girlfriend, so the woman's touch has actually made it worse. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's a case-by-case scenario. Yeah. Buddy. In this case. I mean, guys being slobs and women being clean is uh, a myth. Oh, I know it's a myth. Yeah. Don't you worry about that. But, you know, some neat women think that all women are neat. No. Not all women. No. <laughs> no. Hashtag me men. too. <laughs> <laughs> 
Terry worked from 11pm till 7am managing, <laughs> managing a convenience store. She had no idea about the heinous, depraved things Sean got up to while she was at work. At one point, she worried he might have been having an affair because he was out at all hours. But something she never suspected... Fantasy football. ...was that he played... No, no. She probably suspected that. She, she didn't expect him to be a serial killer, Barney. No. That's what she didn't expect. Ah. Other things she probably thought were possible. Hmm. Sean Gillis was born on June 24, 1962 in Baton Rouge and was raised in southern Louisiana. He was the only child of Yvonne and Norman Gillis. Norman had mental health issues and self-medicated with drugs and alcohol. When Sean was a one-year-old, Norman threatened him and his mother Yvonne at gunpoint. Norman was in and out of mental institutions over a dozen times after this, leaving Sean to grow up without a dad. Yvonne raised him with the help of his grandparents as she worked full-time in the traffic department of a local television station. Sean used to play in the funeral home across the street from his grandparents when he was a kid. He liked to lie in the coffins. It's a phase everybody goes through. Yeah, you grow out of it after a while. Well, eventually. Yeah, they don't make coffins big enough for you to Well, yeah, I literally grew out of it. Horse coffins? Yeah, well, I mean, sure. At school, Sean didn't play sports, wasn't popular, and performed averagely in class. His teachers told the media that, unlike the other kids, his parents never came to school events or parent-teacher evenings. From a young age, Sean was enthralled by death. He often fantasised about his mother dying so she could be his life-sized Barbie doll. He said in a police interview, I would have loved playing with her, changing her clothes, putting her in something sexy, like you'd do with a doll. Oh, that's creepy AF. Oh, that's, dude, it just, it just gets creepier. Really? really? Yes. Yes, this is creepy, but trust me, it's pro- it is probably top five, but it's not number one on the list of how creepy this gets. His fascination with inanimate women would grow as he got older. He looked at women not as people, but more as like a collection of parts. He said to the police that when he was 12, he tried to kill his cousin once to feel her breasts up. Oh, it's just a phase that every boy goes through. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. After high school, Sean attended community college, then got a string of unsatisfying, low-paying jobs while still living with his mother. When he was 29, his mother moved to Atlanta for work, leaving Sean on his own for the first time. He did not care for it and felt that she'd abandoned him. On several occasions, he woke his neighbours up in the middle of the night, lying out on his front lawn, barking at the moon and yelling curses at his mother for leaving him. Sean was not popular with his neighbours. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's just one of the reasons. Come back, mummy. Damn you, mummy. <laughs> Damn you to hell, mum. You're a bitch for this. I'll never forgive you. Oh, <laughs> His female neighbours found him creepy and for good reason. He was creepy. He was once caught peering into the bedroom window of a female neighbour's house. Sean became lonely despite surrounding himself with the loves of his life, computers, the internet, porn and pictures of dead women. Sean had form dating back to 1980 when he was charged with criminal trespass, but his rap sheet contained mostly just like traffic citations. There was a DUI, possession of marijuana, contempt of court as well. Contempt of court. Yeah, I'm not sure of the details on that. Sidebar, but... Your Honour. No, you can't do that. You're not a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Sidebar. 
But all of, uh, all of that was about to change. March 1994 was a big month for Sean. Not only did he begin a relationship with Terry, but he also took the life of his first victim. Across the road from the convenience store Sean worked at in Baton Rouge was the St. James Retirement Home. On March 20th, he was prowling around the neighbourhood when he saw 81-year-old Anne Bryan through an open window. Anne was described by friends as a sweet, sweet lady who had a very close relationship with her family. Sean watched her undress as she ran a bath. After the bath, she lay down on her bed. He felt compelled to go inside and found the outside door of the facility was left unlocked. Anne had also left her door ajar for a nurse who was to come in and administer her medication. Sean entered Anne's room and watched her sleeping for a while. He said he only intended to rape her because, you know, that's not a big deal for anyone, let alone an elderly woman to go through. But he freaked out when she started screaming. To stop her screaming, he said he stabbed her 47 times and slit her throat with the foot-long hunting knife he carried with him. Quite excessive. Nurses found Anne's body early next morning, but this motiveless murder would go unsolved for 10 years. Anne's murder did not go according to the vile fantasy that had been festering inside Sean for many years. He said it was helter-skelter and it scared him and put him off the idea of killing more women for a few years. During this time, Sean thought endlessly about less messy ways of killing. He came up with the idea of using zip ties. If he was caught having them in his possession, it was much easier to explain away than a weapon. He said he'd settled on the humble zip tie as it's big enough to slip over a victim's head then all you have to do is pull them to you, and it's over. He practised at home with the zip ties, using them like lassoes, looping them over a chair and pulling them tight, familiarising himself with his weapon, honing his craft. He called each of his cable ties the objectifier. He stated he did this because it would turn them from a woman to the object I would then deal with. Nearly five years would pass before Sean killed again. He later said that he waited so long before killing his next victim because he was happy. Part of why he was able to continue killing for a decade was because Sean didn't fit into FBI serial killer profiles as his choice of victim crossed boundaries regarding age, race, also sort of circumstance, socioeconomic backgrounds. Sean's next victim would not be elderly or white. 30-year-old Catherine Ann Hall was a black woman who was in the grasp of a crack addiction. She lived in a rundown housing project on North Street in North Baton Rouge. Like many drug addicts, she did sex work so that she was able to afford to feed her addiction. On January 4, 1999, Catherine braved the cold, hoping to make some quick cash. Soon after getting into Sean's car and driving to a secluded location, he overpowered her, quickly looped a plastic cable tie around her neck and choked her. He then stabbed her in the throat and the face. After she was dead, Sean raped her lifeless body and took it back to his place. In a police interview, he said, She had beautiful legs. That's the one thing that I recall about her. And I wanted to keep those legs. Sean placed Catherine's body on the kitchen floor, then sawed her legs off, hoping to keep them for as long as he could. 
Afterwards, he dumped Catherine's body and scrubbed the blood off the floor. When Terry arrived home from work, she was pleased to see that Sean had done some cleaning. When police found Catherine's body, she'd been posed on her back next to a dead-end road sign. They correctly guessed that Sean was making a macabre joke. But the joke would eventually be on him, as he'd left his DNA at the crime scene. Stupid murdery Flanders. Well, it's not that funny a joke, too. Oh, no, but, you know, you're dealing with someone who's very fucked in the head. Yeah. Four months later, in early May, Sean was on the lookout for a new victim when he noticed 52-year-old mother of three and marathon runner Hardy Schmid as she jogged around her South Baton Rouge neighbourhood. He went back to the area periodically over the next few weeks, hoping to see her again. On May 30th, at around 6.30am, Sean caught sight of her. Realising there was nobody else around, he seized the opportunity. He sped up and ran Harley down with his car, a white Chevy Cavalier, knocking her into a ditch. He got out of his car, looped a cable tie around Harley's neck and began choking her until she was unconscious. Then he sat her in the front seat of his car and took her to a nearby park where he murdered and raped her. After mutilating her body with a knife, which is what he calls uh, erotic dismemberment, he was surprised to see how late it was getting. He put Harley's body into the trunk of his car, then went to pick up Terry from work. Terry immediately noticed a bad smell when she got in the vehicle. She recalled the incident, saying, He told me that he'd hit an animal on the way to picking me up, and there was still blood on the car, and that's what the bad smell was. I didn't think twice about it. Harley's body was found a few days later in a St. James Parish bayou. Unlike many of his victims, there was none of his DNA on her body. The TV series Killer Profile did an episode on this case, and they theorised that Sean may not have actually killed Hardy, as her cause of death was blunt force trauma, not strangulation or stabbing. They say he may have claimed somebody else's victim to ensure he beat the total kills of Derek Todd Lee, who was another serial killer operating in the area at the time. The early 2000s were a very bad era to be a woman in Baton Rouge. Oh, absolutely. On November 12th, 36-year-old sex worker Joyce Williams had the misfortune of crossing paths with Sean Gillis. He said he waved a $10 bill at her and she got into his car. He drove her across the Mississippi River and strangled her with a zip tie in a sugarcane field. After killing Joyce, Sean raped her and indulged in a spot of what he liked to call erotic dismemberment by cutting off one of her legs. On January 22, 2000, hunters in Iverville Parish happened upon Joyce Williams's leg bone in a woody area on the east bank of the Mississippi River. 700 feet away, the rest of her skeleton was found. Also in January 2000, Sean murdered and raped 52-year-old Lillian Robinson. A fisherman found her naked body in a swamp on February 10th. In late October, Sean murdered 38-year-old Marilyn Nevels, then showered with her dead body and got up to his old necrophilia tricks. When he was done with her, he dumped her body three miles from his house next to the Mississippi River. Her badly decomposed corpse was found on the river levee on Halloween. After Sean had taken the life of his sixth victim, he took a sabbatical from murder for over a year. Even so, the bodies of women who'd been raped and murdered kept being found in Baton Rouge. But these women were not the victims of Sean Gillis. There was a new kid in town who liked to obliterate women just as much as Sean. 
His name was Derek Todd Lee. He was a 34-year-old ex-con who murdered Gina Wilson-Green in September 2001 and Charlotte Murray-Pace in May the next year. Two months later, Pam Kinnamore also fell victim to Derek. In August 2002, the Baton Rouge Police Department realised they had a severe shitshow in town and formed a task force to deal with it, but most of their time was placed on solving the murders of Derek Todd Lee. Before he was apprehended, Derek also murdered Trinesha Denae Collum and Carrie Lynn Yoda. DNA left at the scene of Trinesha's murder positively linked him to the murders of Gina, Charlotte and Pam. Now, Derek also crossed the FBI's profiling boundaries regarding race as he killed women who were not only black like himself, but also other races as well. So no one in Louisiana is obeying the uh, firm profiles that were in place at the time. Well, you know, they're rules. You shouldn't be breaking them, serial killers. Well, you know, these guys, bunch of rule breakers going on there. They really are. Feeling competitive, Sean spent a lot of time researching Derek's crimes. He made a file on his computer and called it DTL, which are Derek Todd Lee's initials. In this folder, he gathered news articles and photos to follow the case. Taking pride in his work, Sean wanted to make sure that he wasn't outdone by Derek. Ambitious. It's normally oh, yeah, a good thing. They, oh, well, look, there's nothing like having a competitor to really make you up there, up your game, huh? Yeah, maybe not in serial killing. Not a good thing. No. None of it's good. It's none of the... What, do you think we talk about good things? Mm. We've never talked about good things, Barney. No, We're no. not about to start talking. This isn't the, like, bloody good things podcast. Woo! <laughs> bloody good things yeah, podcast. Yeah, people tune in to hear us talk about, nah. you know, some new socks we bought that are really comfortable. They are pretty good, actually. Thanks. Yeah? Thanks for noticing. Oh, yeah. Authorities in Baton Rouge were starting to realise they had more than one serial killer on their hands. In fact, Louisiana actually had four serial killers operating in the same decade. So we got Sean Vincent Gillis, Derek Todd Lee, Jeffrey Lee Guillory, and of course, Ronald Dominique. What are the odds of that happening? That's that's above average. Yeah. It's, they say about 50 active serial killers are working at one time in the US. Oh, I mean, well, that's like one each state, not four each state. Well, that's right. I mean, back in the 80s, it was 200. So, yeah, it's a bit of a dying art, serial killing. <laughs> I mean, you know, just because of DNA. I guess as well, a lot of murderers are now caught before they reach the magic number of three. Yeah, that's right. 45-year-old Johnny Mae Williams had been friends with Sean for 10 years. She'd met him in a store he worked at and they'd hung out together several times. She was said to be a great cook and quite a talented hairdresser, by the way. Yeah. When Sean picked her up on the street in October 2003, she was in the grasp of a crack addiction and turned to sex work to support herself and her three children. Now, as we know, serial killers don't usually murder people that they know. But despite their friendship, Sean said he couldn't restrain himself from killing her. He drove her to a secluded area where he strangled and raped her and then mutilated her body with a knife, cutting off both of her hands. He later said, At that point, they were no longer Johnny May's hands. They were my hands. Sean took them home with him and painted her fingernails, careful to hide them somewhere Terry wouldn't look. He also posed Johnny May's body in a variety of positions and took pictures of her. Johnny May's dumped body was found on October 11th by a group of people riding four-wheelers. Cars. I think they mean like ATVs. Oh, like motorbikes, yeah. But with four wheels? 43-year-old mother of two, Donna Bennett Johnson, had also fallen victim to the crack epidemic. 
Her son Justin said that was the thing that kept her on the streets, looking for the next high. She was a good mother. She just had a problem. To me, she was a great person. I remember her calling me in the evenings just out of the blue to say that she loved me. It wasn't unusual for Donna to disappear for short periods of time, but on this occasion, she didn't come home at all. Local residents looking for a lost dog found Donna's body in a drainage ditch just outside the Baton Rouge city limits on February 27, 2004. She'd been strangled to death. Justin told the Mirror that he was playing basketball with his little brother when he was told the horrendous news. He said all the sound in the room disappeared. There's nothing that compares to hearing those words. Sean claimed Donna was drunk when he picked her up, which made her easier to kill. After driving her to a location near his house, he looped a cable tie around her neck and strangled her. According to his later account of the murder, it was a quick death. Sean always killed the women quickly, as it wasn't their suffering that he got off on. He just wanted to play with their corpses. He said he'd much rather have found murdered women's bodies and played with them rather than kill them himself. Now by play with them, I mean rape them and dismember them. It's quite unique though, isn't it? It's a quite a unique MO. Yeah, it is quite unusual actually. Um, the only other thing I can think of is like um, Dharma and Nielsen who liked sort of having the bodies around, but they like to keep them and, you know, sleep with them and stuff. They like to kill though too. Yeah. He doesn't. Oh, well, with Nielsen and, and Dharma, they were killing for company. Yeah. But I mean, he's killing for body parts, really. Mm. And also, you know, sexual gratification afterwards. Uh, that's all. But yeah, it's horrible. very unusual. I saw a... I saw a TV show about this case years ago and it always stuck with me, but I didn't think to cover it because I assumed that it would have been covered like tons of times, but I recently checked and it hasn't been. Mm, Yeah, I thought this would have got a lot of traction because it's just so strange. It's very odd. Yeah. Sean stripped off Donna's clothes and placed her body on the ground where he cut up both of her breasts and cut off her left nipple. He also cut a tattoo from her right thigh and removed her left arm at the elbow. He took the arm home with him and later used it to masturbate with. Sean took dozens of photos of himself posing with Donna's hacked up corpse. Less than two months later, investigators matched an unusual Goodyear tyre track found at the scene where Sean had dumped Donna's body to his white Chevrolet Cavalier. See, what they'd done is um, they'd realised that they were really unusual tyres. There were only like, I don't know, under 200 people actually had these tyres in the area. So they tested the DNA of all of the people that had those tyres. They got voluntary... um... DNA samples, yeah. Right, okay. So um, detectives matched a DNA profile from a swab taken from Sean Gillis to evidence found on several of his victims. So the tyres matched and his DNA matched. So you know. Yeah, I bet he was kind of hoping that dumping them in swamps and bayous that would wash away a lot of the DNA evidence. Well, he actually talks in um, in his police interviews about how he was always careful with all that stuff, mm. but clearly not as careful as he thought he was. Well, you that's know, right. they always get caught out because they think that they're smarter than they are. Mm, that's right. Narcissists. Ugh, big time. After searching Sean's house, several books about serial killers were seized like they would be from all of our houses. Unlike the rest of our houses, detectives also found saws, knives, a machete, plastic zip ties, external hard drives, 
four computers, a 14-inch bayonet, and photos of Johnny May Williams' dead body and a shit ton of porn. One of his computers contained files called Best of Snuff, Beheadings and Hangings, and Russian Necrophilia. What would Russian Tara say about that? Well, Mother Russia does make some of the best necrophilia in the world. (laughs) You're right, Russian Tara. FBI agents interviewed Sean Gillis in May 2004. Acting like he was some kind of criminal mastermind, he told the agents he was playing a game of chess with them as they investigated his crimes. He said, My basic interest would be, okay, did they find it? Where did they find it? What was the condition of the body? Sean explained to the agents that he used a mixture of charisma and money to lure potential victims into his car. He said... The hookers loved me. I treated them like women, like ladies. Hey, baby. No. He told them he never had a plan for exactly when he would murder his next victim. So none of this, the moon is in the seventh house bullshit. He just sprang into murderous action when the opportunity would arise. See, Sean just wasn't sexually aroused by women who were alive. In his taped interview, he said... You can do things with a dead woman that you couldn't even dream with a live woman. His favourite thing was raping, mutilating and manipulating the bodies of dead women. He said he tried eating the flesh of one of his victims once too, but he spat it out because he didn't like it. Terry had walked in on him jerking off to extreme porn a few times, but he never wanted to have sex with her. He told her that he thought regular sex was nasty. They were together for 10 years, right? Yeah, you know, they did it a few times, but he wasn't really into it because he thought it was nasty. Mm. Unlike this. He did not care for alive sex at all. He told the FBI that he'd even considered victimising women who were in comas, but it was logistically impractical. Regarding his sanity, he said in his interview, Yeah, I know right from wrong as well as you do. But there are certain times when it fuzzes out and it's not like I don't know it anymore. It's like it doesn't matter anymore. This is my universe. I am God. Sean Gillis stood trial for the murders of Catherine Hall, Johnny May Williams, Donna Bennett Johnson and Joyce Williams. They were the strongest cases with the most evidence. Well, he's going to get enough years. He's never getting out, yeah. At trial, Sean's sanity came into question as well, but court-appointed psychiatrists declared him sane enough. Well, he knows right from wrong. He knows knows enough to cover up his crimes. Yeah, absolutely. He wasn't doing this in front of cops, was he? No. He was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison after the jury deadlocked in the penalty phase. See, the state couldn't enter his taped confession into evidence because Sean had asked for an attorney during his interview, so that made it inadmissible during the trial. Rookie mistake. Yeah. Look, it's highly likely he would have received the death penalty had they seen the tape. Uh, There's a lot of footage of Sean Vincent Gillis's interviews online, and they're also used in Born to Kill, the TV show. There's an episode, and also Killer Instinct. They're really, really worth seeing. You've got you to look into that Flanders stuff. There's also a lot of interviews with Terry, and they're interesting too. So I mm. highly recommend people check those out. Um, and the things that he says in that interview are incredibly damning. Like he just goes in there. He just says, well, all these quotes that I've mentioned, along with several other bloody damning things too. Definitely worth a look. Sean Gillis will spend the rest of his messed up life in Louisiana State Penitentiary. During an interview, Terry Lemoyne gave us all this warning. 
Never think you know everything about anybody. Never. It's good advice. Yeah. I can understand why she would say that. I don't know everything about you, Tara. Oh, you don't want to. Oh, you do not want to mess with me. Um, But how alarming. Imagine to think... I mean, we've both been gobsmacked by by partners that we've had before and we're like, oh, well, we didn't think they would do that, but they weren't serial killers. Yeah. I think it's quite interesting that he was able to have a relationship with a woman for 10 years. And also, that's really unique that he didn't like killing. He just wanted to be able to mutilate and have sex with dead bodies. He didn't hate it. He wasn't like, oh, I'm going to cry because I have to kill women. He was like, this is just what I have to do to get to that point where I can do the really fun well, shit. Well, hey, he worked out the quickest way to do it with those zip ties. Yeah. Well, it is a quick way. It's actually um, really frightening to think about. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah, he mimes it out in the interviews as well. Like he had it down to just this like you wouldn't see it coming. You'd just be like, yeah, done. Ugh. You are done. It's terrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. What a story. Mm. Well, I think we might need to... Uh, Here's something else after that. What time is it, Barney? It's True Crime Nerd Time. Hooray! True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. I love True Crime. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, Pancake, sausage, song, <laughs> or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Really? You've added breakfast prudes to the list of things that people can do now? Yes. You can record <laughs> your voice, just do it on your phone, or send in the pancake or sausage and we'll eat it and talk about it. Yeah, especially if it looks like Albert Fish. Yeah. And we have one here from Lorraine Ledwell, the lovely Lorraine. Good Lord, she's not Welsh, is she? Yes, she is. Yes, she is. Welsh, laws. It's got a lot of castles in Wales, apparently the most in anywhere in Europe in one spot in well, Wales. Well, you know, Lorraine has to live somewhere. She has to live Probably somewhere. Probably in the finest castle of them all. Right, yeah. Kate Bush is her neighbour. Yeah. Yeah, Enya's probably near. Oh, no, that's an Irish castle. Probably no. not that close. They could probably see each other with binoculars from how high their castles well, are. Well, they probably have a telescope. Yeah. Say, on a tripod. And a chairlift that... That goes all the way from each other's castles. I bet they've got some good sausages and pancakes there. I know there's some good gin at Lorraine's house. (laughs) Oh, right. I'll be right over. Anyway, we digress. Lorraine writes, I have been watching a series on the BBC called Catching Britain's Killers, The Crimes That Changed Us. The first program, DNA, is about a case in Leicestershire, England, in the 1980s. In 1983, two teenage girls were attacked and killed by what appeared to be the same perpetrator, leaving the local community shocked, reeling and very scared. After much investigating, questioning and taking of fingerprints, the detection of this crime came to a halt until a seemingly chance discovery that even the scientists didn't believe could be true changed forensics forever. Sausages. (laughs) I'm pretty sure they've been discovered earlier than that, Barney. Yeah, I thought you would be way better at sausage history. I I don't know my sausage history. No, you just know that they taste good in your mouth. It was a really early class when I went to university. I always slept through sausage (laughs) history. (laughs) Well, you were just like, I know what I need to know about them. Yeah. Yum. 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 (laughs) 
Footage and interviews with police officers, local journalists and forensic scientists who dealt with the crime at that time, as well as friends and close relatives of the victims, gave a fascinating snapshot of the era. And as the program develops, it tells the story of the investigation that would ultimately find the killer, but moreover, lead to the very first use of a brand new forensic science, DNA fingerprinting and the creation and development of the world's first DNA database that would lead to solving crimes that previously seemed impossible. This is the first in the series of programs that show pivotal moments in criminal and forensic history where double jeopardy laws were changed, appeals were upheld, interrogation procedures overhauled as mindsets and policing change forever. And it would never be the same again. Yeah, wow. That sounds quite compelling, Lorraine. Yeah, I think I'm I might check, that, check out. that out. Big time. I mean, if we can. <laughs> BBC. Not sure if we get that. Now, Tara, I've got something that you probably don't know. If you'd like to submit a true crime nerd time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to do that. It's quite easy. Just yeah. email it to us. Make it about 250 words. Yeah, it needs to be kind of not oh. just like, um, I really like Ted Bundy shows. It needs yeah. to be a little bit more fleshed out. Don't just send me a link to a Wikipedia article. You have to write it. Yeah. yeah we yeah. want you to contribute. Be part of Bloody oh, Murder. What we would love as well is if people recorded them on their phones. We've only ever had a few people brave enough yeah. to do that, and they were awesome. Mm. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. All right, Barney, I believe it's time for you to get murdery. Born in 1942 in Colac in country Victoria, James Edward Jockey Smith was the runt of the litter and had to fight to be heard from birth. Being the second last of eight children must have been hard for young Eddie, but his parents, Daniel and Jean Smith, were honest and hard-working church-going folks. His father wasn't at home much, which meant his mother raised the Smith kids, which could not have been easy for his invalid mother, Jean. Well, Willow and Jaden are a big enough handful without adding health problems to the list. And now, this is a different Smith family, Tara. I know it's not a common name. No. Oh, so there's two families with the surname Smith? Yes. Okay. So, Tara, Eddie's mother, Jean, had a wooden leg. She had lost the leg as a girl when a railway car had run her over. She wasn't a pirate at all. No, well, I mean, I, I guess she could have been. Life was hard and the Smith family were poor, but as far as I can tell, there was no criminality in the family and Eddie's folks were well-respected and did much charity and community work. Unlike yourself, Barney. I do heaps of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. In 1956, the Smith family moved to Geelong. Not Will Smith's fam. Will Smith's no, family. No, well, we would have heard no. about that. Melbourne's industrial hub southwest of the city. 
At the age of 14, Eddie left school and got a job labouring in a local factory. I believe it was a wool mill. Oh, okay. Eddie hated the work, but it was a means to an end. Since an early age, Eddie had loved horses, and being tiny with a squeaky voice, his dream was to become a jockey. Makes sense. Soon he had saved up enough cash to purchase his own horse. Eddie took to riding like a drop bear to a tourist's face. <laughs> Dangerously, <a> n- <laughs> aggressively. <laughs> That's right. With a natural talent to ride and a spooky emotional affinity with his horse, Eddie was able to train Mrs. Longface to do tricks and run fast. Was that its real name or did you make that up? It was probably its name. But you also made it up. I did, but it's <laughs> highly likely that his horse was called Mrs. Longface. Because well, it's a good name for a horse. It is, and you have a creepy affinity with just knowing the facts. It is known. It is no end. It was about this time Eddie left the drudgery of factory work and realised his dream, securing the job of an apprentice jockey. I think this is maybe how he got his nickname too, Jockey. Or perhaps it was the Nundies he wore. Oh, like camper. Now, Eddie did all right for a while, riding at race meets in Geelong and Caulfield. But alas, trouble was brewing, like my guts after a night of beer and curry. Oh, too much information. Let's talk about it more. No. You see, Tara, Eddie was now enjoying the good life, which made him put on a few pounds and gave him a growth spurt. Horses hate to carry fatties. At least that's what the trainers told Eddie. So his popularity on the racetrack took a serious dive. Oh, it's just like that Daryl Braithwaite song. Which song? That's the way it's going to be, little fatty. No more riding on the horses, Eddie. This made Eddie crack the serious sads. The serious sads turned into the serious shits and Eddie became pissy and frustrated. Not riding meant less money and Eddie was reduced to shoveling horse shit in the stables to make a living. Angry and feeling betrayed, Eddie started pinching stuff from his employers as some kind of demented revenge. It wasn't long before his thieving ways were discovered, which got him sacked and in trouble with a constabulary. His dreams squashed and stinking like so much stale horseshit, unemployed Eddie took to crime, breaking into garages and shops and taking whatever was not nailed down, including some bins. Really? But more on bins later. Okay. Far from an accomplished thief... Eddie was soon caught and at the age of 18 served his first sentence in prison. Here he met his mentor, an older career criminal named Ronald Ryan. That's a very famous name. A skilled armed robber and safecracker. Eddie and Ronnie Ryan got along like peaches and cream. You see, Tara, they both dug the GGs. Yes, they love the horses and they especially love gambling. Eddie and Ronnie were soon BFFs. Eddie adored Ronnie and they spent a lot of time together listening to records, reading Babysitter's Club books and talking about boys. (laughs) These are all facts, I'm sure. After they were both released from prison, this bromance continued. In fact, they became so close that even their families were friends. Wow, they should like get married. Ronald Ryan was Eddie's teacher in the ways of crime. Ronnie taught Eddie the way to get respect was to be violent. And it didn't hurt if you acted a bit crazy. Well, that's kind of the Chopper Reed um, approach, isn't it? Give me your money. Ah, I'm crazy. (laughs) Now, it can be a bit difficult to scare and intimidate people when you're five foot nothing. I dare you to say that to Joe Pesci's face. Fuck no, he'll stab you with a pen. He will, right in the neck. Eddie had a better idea. Everyone shits their pants when you put a gun in their face. So, yeah, Tara, let's put a gun in the hand of a person with poor impulse control. Wouldn't be the first time. What could go wrong? Plenty. 
One night, Eddie and Ronnie boosted a truckload of Christmas hams from a factory in Colac. Eddie was driving the truck back to Geelong with Ronnie following behind in a car. Police pulled over Eddie after a worker at the ham factory saw his employer's truck driving down the road at three in the morning and phoned it in. Well, that's no time to be transporting ham, is it? Yeah, he saw it and he had to go and find a phone booth because no one had phones. Okay. In the, in the early like, oh, 60s. That's, that's, not, that's not scheduled ham transportation. <laughs> yeah. That's not scheduled ham transportation. Ah, no, in fact, it's illegal in this country to transport ham between the hours of midnight and 5am. Where's the nearest phone booth? Eddie leapt out of the car, gun in hand, and tried to fire at the two coppers, but his gun jammed. The cops then tackled him to the ground and hauled him in. As Ronald Ryan drove past, he shook his head and said, Fuck with (laughs) This was the first time Eddie pulled a gun on police, but it certainly wouldn't be the last. No, I liked it, did he? Thought it was, oh, this feels pretty rad. Mm. It was all downhill from there, Tara. Soon afterwards, Eddie's mentor and bestie for the restie, Ronald Ryan, was up shit creek with a tennis racket for a paddle. Oh, yeah, he sure was. He was in prison for robbing nine butcher shops and exploding their safes. He's got a thing for stealing meat, doesn't he? Yeah, maybe the meat was in the safes. Ah, he couldn't get to the sausages without some bang bang. That's right. There's some true crime nerd time sausage stuff there. Yeah, well, I mean, you're telling the story now, the sausage crimes. It was just before Sausage Christmas 1965. (laughs) Sausage Christmas, that's every other Sunday. It was just before Christmas 1965, and Ronnie was not digging his incarceration, and after being informed that his wife was seeking a divorce, Ronnie got an itchy bum and busted out of Pentridge Prison, shooting prison guard George Hodson dead on the way out. Recaptured a few weeks later, Ronald Ryan was charged with murder, found guilty and controversially sentenced to hang. Controversially, I say, because many Australians were opposed to capital punishment and also because many believed the fatal bullet that killed George Hodson had come from one of the guard towers and not Ronald Ryan. Yeah, Cambo did an episode about Ronald Ryan on True Crime Island. It's very good. I've heard that one. Yeah, it's a really good one. So if you're interested in hearing more, check that out. There was a lot of talk that Eddie was going to break his mentor out moments before he was due to hang. Rumours of exploding the front gates and going in with automatic rifles blazing were flying around. Word of this plan got back to Ronnie, who nixed it. He said, nah, don't do it. It's like, nah, you know what? Fuck it. I'll just hang. Well, it's funny you should say that, Tara. Ronald Ryan was hanged at Pentridge Prison on the 3rd of February 1967. He was the last man to be executed in Australia. Not long after, Eddie was back in Pentridge Prison, facing eight years for receiving stolen goods and for some reason possessing explosives and automatic rifles. It was here that the name Edward Jockey Smith would become legend. Eddie got himself a job in a prison garage. The then warden, Eric Shea, pushed the prisoners hard and liked to get his car serviced every Monday morning. Sneaky Eddie would get his mates on the outside to get under Shea's car on the Sunday night and load it up with drugs and other contraband. Ah, including several leg hams? So Eddie pretty much got the governor of Pentridge to deliver contraband into Pentridge every week. (laughs) Oh my God, that's amazing. Eddie's cool shares skyrocketed in the clink and he became renowned for his audacious and clever schemes. Oh, he would have been invited to join every gang. He was also quite famous for his hijinks Mm -hmm. and his capers. Yeah, you know what? He was prom king in Pentridge several years running. Oh yeah. 
Eddie served five years of his nine-year sentence because, you know, good behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> you mean secret bad behaviour. And the big doors of Pentridge swung open for him in 1972. He would not enjoy his liberty for long. Less than a year later, he pulled a gun on a cop who tried to pinch him. Now, police don't like having pistols pointed at them, and after a sound beating from the popo, he was back inside the familiar walls of Pentridge. Did he get his old cell back where he had like posters? Oh, of can I have my old cell back? Clubs, club on the wall, and you know, Ronnie for jockey forever. And, and I've that. been scratching the days off, and I just want to continue that. Yeah. <laughs> Disgraced former detective Roger Rogerson said this of Edward Jockey Smith. I think he loved having a gun with him because he wasn't that physically fit. You could say he was a bit of a slob. He had this bloody squeaking voice that used to drive me mad. But I think the gun was part of his persona. He had to have that gun there. He wasn't afraid to pull it out, use it, whether on a policeman or not. Yeah, blokes like Jockey Smith use that as their height, their strength and their power to be able to terrify people. That was quite... um. Quite well put by old Rogie Rog, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, he has a turn of phrase. He certainly does. Released towards the end of 1973, Eddie went straight back to his thieving ways. Lock up your bins. After a series of armed robberies across two states, police nabbed Eddie in December 1974 and chucked the cheeky bastard back in Pentridge Prison. On remand awaiting trial, Eddie quickly escaped. This is how the sneaky knucklebutt did it. Whilst the rest of the prisoners in Pantridge were wearing prison greens, the remand prisoners were in civilian clothes. Eddie was dressed in the clothes he was arrested in. Lickety-split, he scaled a wall, creeped across the roof and silently dropped into the visitor's section. He managed to grab a visitor's pass and just fucking strolled out, Tara. <laughs> Eight days after his arrest. No tunnels, no guns, no exploding walls and no one gets hurt except for the feelings of a certain guard named Duncan, who he gave a cheery goodbye to on the way out. Oh, Duncan must have been kicking himself later. See you next time, Duncan. Have a good weekend. (laughs) (laughs) I went and Duncan went, yeah, great, mate, see ya. Oh, I like Duncan. He's a good, good prison guard. He's an honest prison guard. Likes to run fast in the wet. And like Mary and her pet she took to school one day, Eddie was on the lamb. Oh, God. What? That makes sense. It does not. Eddie made front-page news with police describing him as an extremely violent man hopelessly addicted to armed hold-ups. That's an interesting way of putting it. Hopelessly devoted to armed hold-ups. That's in Greece, isn't it? Yep. Olivia sung it. But Eddie didn't want to do armed hold-ups. He wanted the quiet life. For after running to Sydney, something happened to him that changed his view of the world. Eddie fell in love. It was in the Harbour City, famous for its large coat hanger bridge, that Eddie met blonde bombshell Valerie Hill. Forever a gangster's mole, Valerie was well known to police in both Sydney and Melbourne. Eventually, Eddie and Valerie set up a love shack in the southern highlands of New South Wales, a tiny little town in bumfuck nowhere called Kangaroo Valley. Here, 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 he acted like a normal bloke, blending in and going back to his first love, training horses. Mrs. Longface? Yeah. He was careful, changing his appearance regularly and watching who he talked to. But, 
and it's a good size butt. Mm-hmm. He wasn't that careful, Tara. He went to the pub. Didn't you say he was very careful and then now you're saying he wasn't? Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Just making oh, well, sure I I'm keeping up. It's a, reason, it's a good size butt. Okay, yeah, yeah well, good. <sighs> he went to the pub, went to local dancers and even had people over for a barbie now and then. Oh, you want sauce on your sausage there? Oh, it's a good sauce. It's an honest sauce. I've got some Christmas hams inside. <laughs> Take a few home with you if Take you like. Take a few home with you. They're really, I've got like oh, 10. Yeah, they're real nice. They're a bit old now. Yeah, about 20 years old. They're but, about um, five years old, actually, if good. you do the math on it, Tara. Oh, I don't like math, Barney. <laughs> I like horses. You it's like a horses? Good horse. A very good horse. Nah. <laughs> That's what Mrs. Leatherface said about him. No, Mrs. Longface. Oh, I wish it was Mrs. Leatherface. That's a uh, cool one. That's name. another horse. That's a different story. <laughs> that horse wears dungarees and wields a chainsaw. Yeah. I like that horse. I'm going to talk about that horse next week. Eddie went by the alias Tommy Cummings, taking the names of his two favourite horse trainers, Tommy Smith and Bart Cummings. I guess it's better than the name Cummy Tommings. <laughs> Thank you for your contribution. Yeah, well, yeah, you're welcome. Eddie even took some of his horses to city and country meets. Once, Eddie was pulled over by a country cop on his way to a race meet. Rather than go for his gun hidden in the glove box like he usually did, Eddie managed to charm his way out of it. Hey, baby! Hey, baby! (laughs) But as the saying goes, bad habits die hard, and they certainly did for Edward Jockey Smith. During another routine encounter with police in 1976, Eddie did what Eddie does and pulled a gun on the frightened copper. This was followed by a high-speed chase in which slippery Eddie escaped. In June 1973, Eddie murdered Sydney bookmaker Lloyd Tidmarsh. Eddie and two other masked men burst into Tidmarsh's home late at night, held him at gunpoint and demanded to know where the safe was. Tidmarsh's son Michael heard the voices and came out of his bedroom to investigate. The teenager was pistol-whipped to the ground. Meanwhile, Michelle Tidmarsh, Lloyd's daughter, was awoken by the noise and lay in bed terrified. She later identified the whining, squeaky voice of Edward Jockey Smith, hearing him say, Where's the money? Where's the safe? I know you have one. After hearing her father explain there wasn't any money, Michelle Tidmarsh heard three shots and then running and a door slam. She found her father dead and her brother cowering in the corner of the room. In August 1977, Eddie robbed a bank in Hurstville in which shots were fired. Eddie got away with $180,000, which was then Australia's largest armed bank robbery. I'll buy a lot of ham. And bins. Hearing that the cops were hot on his heels, Eddie and Valerie moved from Kangaroo Valley to the small town of Nowra, also in country New South Wales. Eddie was now wanted for murder, attempted murder a dozen armed robberies, as well as his escape from Pantridge. Named Public Enemy Number 1, a task force was established to bring Eddie in, dead or alive. Police eventually found Eddie's hideout after a local estate agent reported renting a property to a small, beardy man with a high-pitched voice. Dozens of cops descended on the small farmhouse, but they were too late, Tara. Once again, Eddie had slipped through their fingers. He was probably there. They just couldn't see him. Valerie Hill. He was hiding under Val's skirt. Right. 
Just stay there. Just stay there, Eddie. They won't hear you. All right, Val. Tell me when they're gone, Val. <laughs> Valerie Hill was inside and she was arrested. After searching the house, police discovered guns, bulletproof vests, police scanners, handcuffs and disguises. Mm. Maybe that was for sexy time. You be the horse, I'll be the jockey. Eddie had run off into the bush, pinched a bike and rode into the neighbouring town of Belmaderry. Local cops found Eddie hiding out in a phone box. You see, Tara, they weren't all glass in those days. Oh, okay. They were red. Oh, I've never seen those. Made out of timber. Really? Yeah. Oh. Detective Bob Gordon opened the door and grabbed Eddie. Eddie, of course, drew a gun and thrust it into Gordon's gut. As the hammer cocked, Gordon placed the webbing of his thumb and forefinger in it. Eddie fired, but the detective's hand prevented the gun from discharging. Wow, that's clever. Eddie was arrested and given a good beating, after which Eddie tried to bribe every cop he came into contact with. They all politely declined. No, thank you. Here's a punch in the face. (laughs) Edward Jockey Smith was charged with quite a few offences, which I will now read out. Oh, really? No, No, I won't. Here's an abridged version. The murder of Lloyd Tidmarsh, the attempted murder of numerous policemen, a shit ton of armed robberies, his escape from Pentridge, and a bunch of other stuff. That was was nice and succinct. What would follow would be a shit ton of court cases, which I will now read out. (laughs) No, I won't. Whilst in maximum security Katingle in Sydney... Ah, Katingle. Every week it's Katingle. Oh, the robot meals delivered to you on a tray. Yeah, I know, the conveyor belt, but Mm. everyone hates it because apparently it sucks. Anyway, in Katingle, Eddie studied law books and decided to represent himself. So that always goes well, hey, Tara? Oh, it's usually just the bloody narcissists. They're completely up themselves narcissist fucks that do that. Usually, not Mm. always. But I'm thinking like your Bundys and, um, you know, that um, curly fucker. The dating game, Rodney Alkea, hmm. you know, those kind of guys. Well, it didn't go well for Eddie. He was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to life three times. I guess I could have written three life sentences. Oh, I don't, nah. Nah, <laughs> I think three times. You, it was more succinct, Barney. I like that. Thank you. But as always, things are not as they seem, Tara. Mm, I'm actually a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Um, After years of court appeals, Eddie finally succeeded in having his Lloyd Tidmarsh murder conviction overturned after getting the court to dismiss Michelle Tidmarsh's identification of his voice. Oh, shit. How did he manage that? That could be any high-pitched, squeaky, short-ass jockey dude's voice, he told the judge, (laughs) and the judge bought it. it. The judge was probably, like, he probably had a similar voice, and he was like, damn, I don't want to go to jail for this. But... And it's a butt that's about 14 years long. Eddie still had the attempted murder and robbery convictions to serve, which were about 14 years long. I was assuming that's what you meant, <laughs> although you could be talking about the size of my butt. In, in 1980, Eddie... you usually do. <clears throat> it's all you think about. Oh, God, I talk about it all the time. Ah, uh, Tara. Oh, you Tara should read butt. my Tara butt diary. I have. I, I don't think it's long enough, but I do appreciate all the drawings. Thank you. They're quite flattering. They're not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with my self-image, trust me, they are. In 1980, Eddie and Valerie got married in what I'm sure was a beautiful jailhouse chapel horse-themed wedding. Mm, Nay. In 1992, after 14 years in prison, Eddie was finally free. Valerie was there waiting for him as he stepped out of Silverwater Prison. It would be less than a day before Eddie was in trouble once more. Oh, dude. 
The night of his release, Eddie and Valerie went out to dinner and drinks to celebrate. After a solid night of disco dancing and sinking schooners of beer, the couple returned to Valerie's flat in the Sydney beachside suburb of Bondi. As they were walking up the stairs, a shadowy figure emerged from the darkness and called Eddie's name. Hey, you little cunt! And shot him three times. Actually, the balaclava-clad gunman fired seven times. I guess only three bullets hit Jockey because he was a small target. Oh, okay. Not according to the horses. Anyway, three forty-five caliber bullets ripped into Eddie's chest and stomach. He staggered up the stairs, blood spurting out of his body before he collapsed. Paramedics were called, but it wasn't looking good for the horse-loving Eddie. In critical condition, Eddie was rushed to hospital where it was touch and go for a while. But Eddie was a fighter and he survived. Adhering to the criminal code of honour, Eddie refused to name the attacker. The word was he knew who shot him and the word said it was an ex-boyfriend of Valerie's. Oh, so it wasn't even anyone that he'd like messed with as a criminal. No. As such. Although she was like a big, like she was into the bad boys, wasn't she? She was. Mm. Much like yourself, Barney. True. It was a long road to recovery for Broken Eddie, and while he was convalescing, he received a most unexpected package, a shoebox stuffed with $32,000 in cash, a gift from prisoners across New South Wales and Victoria. This was how well he was regarded in the criminal world. After months of healing, Eddie decided to get back on that horse. Not a real horse. I'm talking about crime. Oh, the horse of crime. Mm, the crime horse. Mm. It was time for Eddie to diversify, and let's face it, Eddie was pushing 50, and armed robbery is a young man's game. So Eddie became a drug dealer. Less legwork and a hell of a lot more money to be made. Eddie and Valerie moved their shit show to the New South Wales Central Coast, where he could be close to the source of his income, marijuana. But Eddie was already on the cops' radar and was soon under investigation for trafficking. And on the 29th of November 1992, he found a listening device in his home. Once again, it was time for the couple to move on. Soon after, Eddie would make the biggest mistake of his career. What would start as a minor shoplifting incident would blow up into a major hostage kidnapping crisis. Whoa. And this is how it happened. One afternoon, Eddie dropped into a local mall and decided to do a bit of shoplifting. Eddie was a notorious tight ass. Even if he had $1,000 in his pocket, he would still steal a pack of gum. One of his favourite things to steal was rubbish bins. So you weren't kidding when you said that before? No, yes, you heard me right. Plastic rubbish bins. Oh, God. He'd leave an armed robbery with 200 grand in the trunk and pull up outside a hardware store and run up and knock off a half a dozen rubbish bins out the front. Why was he so big on them? Did he like getting inside them and rolling down hills? (laughs) I I would like to see that. Was he quite a fan of Oscar the Grouch? I don't know. He just thought rubbish bins were cool. Where did he put them? A lot of money in rubbish bins, don't you know? No, I'm pretty sure that's not true. Well, we wouldn't just leave them on the street all the time. Anyway, this day, Eddie had nabbed himself a sweet rubbish bin from Grace Brothers. (laughs) Well, it would have been fancy. It would have been fancy. But security guards had spotted him and followed him out. When they caught up with the bin-obsessed Eddie, (laughs) he, of course, waved a gun at them, threatening the life of one of the officers. Eddie then ran to a nearby car, ordering a terrified elderly couple to drive him down the road. After a short time, he bailed up another driver, ordered him out of his car and sped off to Saratoga where he abandoned the vehicle and ran into bushland, 
probably still carrying the stolen bin. Well, probably. You wouldn't want to let that go. It's not like you can just find another bin. Oh, no. They don't, <laughs> They're yeah. very rare. Stop making them. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he was stocking up for the bin apocalypse. So there you go, Tara. Way to turn shoplifting into kidnapping, threatening to kill, and grand theft auto. Well, a lot of crooks have become... A lot of uh, quite serious murderers and things have come undone by shoplifting. I mean, Fred Durst. Yes. And also Charles Ng. That's true. Yeah, both of them. Mm. Just petty shoplifting got them all of their murders and horror discovered. So, in just a few short hours, Eddie had gone from free man to being chased by police helicopters. Just for a bloody bin. (sighs) It's a fancy bin. Sorry, just for a bloody fancy bin. That night, Eddie decided that Sydney was getting a bit hot for him, so he headed south to Victoria. Hiding out in the country town of Dalesford, Eddie decided to pop his head up one night and go to the local pub for a few pints. On his way there, his driving caught the attention of a young police constable, Ian Harris. Constable Harris caught up to Eddie's car and noticed that it was travelling about 80 in a 100 zone. Yeah. Eddie's slow driving aroused his suspicions. Oh, okay. He called HQ and got them to run the plates. It was a stolen car. Full of bins. And ham. (laughs) Constable Harris flashed his lights and indicated to Eddie to pull over. Eddie pulled the stolen ride into the car park of the Farmer's Arms Hotel. Bad shit was about to go down, Tara. Eddie got out of the car and approached Constable Harris with a folder in his right hand. The folder was concealing a pistol. After the young constable asked for his licence, Eddie drew on him and demanded his firearm. Constable Harris put his hands up and started backing away. Meanwhile, a local man, Daryl Neal, was driving past with his two young boys in his car. He pulled over and asked, Is everything all right there? Eddie turned his gun on the young father and shouted, Fuck off, mate, it's got nothing to do with you! Eddie then fired into the air. Darren Neal, thinking of his children's safety, sped off. The noise of the gun and shouting was heard inside the pub and some patrons came out to see what was going on. Constable Harris screamed at them, He's got a gun! Go back inside! Eddie fired into the air again. Meanwhile, Darren Neal had driven down the road a bit, after which he told his kids to get out of the vehicle. They begged him to stay, but Darren Neal insisted. He did a U-turn, gunned the engine and took off, aiming his car straight at Eddie. Eddie heard the engine and turned his attention to Darren Neal, firing a shot at him. Constable Harris screamed, Run him over! Run him over! With Eddie distracted, Constable Harris drew his service revolver and shot three times, hitting Eddie in the chest and head, killing him instantly. James Edward Jockey Smith was dead. Constable Ian Harris and Darren Neal were awarded medals for bravery. The traumatic event doomed the career of Ian Harris, though. Suffering from PTSD, eventually he was unable to work as a police officer. When Eddie's body was searched, they found a canister of mace in his pocket. I guess, Tara, he didn't think to use that rather than use his gun. Eddie's stupid life ended in the most predictable way. I'm just glad he didn't take down more innocent people with him. Yeah, that's where I thought you were going with this, actually. I was quite concerned. Of the 51 years he spent alive, 25 of them were spent in prison before he met his inevitable bloody end. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of surprising he didn't cop it earlier, considering how, how much he liked pulling guns on cops. So that's the story of Edward Jockey Smith. Wow. Bit of a roller coaster, eh? It really was. I don't like roller coasters. No. <laughs> I like that story, though. Oh, thanks. <laughs> 
So for me, not like a roller coaster because I don't think they're good. Do you have any questions? Uh, yes. I have one. <laughs> Apparently I don't. My question was, was I, I did it in such a way that only dogs could hear it. Oh, right. Woof. Is that the Woof. answer? I have a question for you, Tara. Yes, Barney? What is Aussie as? Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I'd love to hear one. So, um, Barney, have you ever had any super dodgy neighbours? No. You know if you haven't, that means that you're the super dodgy neighbour, right? Oh, yeah, I've had a lot of complaints. Yeah, well, I no. mean, rightly so. A pet cockatoo at the centre of a ridiculous and nasty neighbourhood dispute has just been cleared of wrongdoing in a case an Adelaide judge called completely unjustified. Let's unpack this, shall we? Okay. Yes. So a woman who we shall name Kaza, because it's short for Karen, had only been renting a house in the northern suburbs for a few months before she sued her neighbours for damages. Kaza had a list of oh ferocious complaints here. Do you want to hear what some of the some of the horrible things that her neighbours did? Yeah, for sure. Alrighty then. Well, the family's cockatoo screeches too much, their dogs bark, their young children play outside, and the man sometimes whistles when he mows the fucking lawn. Can well, you believe the shit she had to put up with? Well, that's quite irritating. I mean, the sound of children playing is, oh, it's, is it's like it's, fingers oh, down a blackboard, absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Uh, I heard that she also claimed everyone in the household breathed and that shattered at tears as well. Oh, wow. So the City of Prospect investigated the allegations and found the noise generated by the cockatoo was not excessive and there was no cause for complaint. After all the shit Kaza put him through, though, the family lodged a counterclaim alleging that Kaza harassed them by calling the police to their property for no reason 15 times, including six times on Christmas Day because of loud talking. Ah, talking during Christmas. Doug, you don't talk on Christmas Day, particularly not loudly. No. No, that's a time for no talking or very quiet library voices. Hey, remember that Christmas Day we decided to make frozen margaritas and we sat on my balcony? That was fucking awesome. I was very hungover the next day. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that I can thought happen. I was going to die. But you didn't, did you, champ? I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe this is just like, this is purgatory, Barney. Oh, and, right. and, and I'm in it, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> the family described living next door to Kaza as a nightmare and said that they installed security cameras and fences in an effort to keep the lady prick off their property. Kaza was probably lurking outside their house with her ear against a glass, hoping to hear something that annoyed her. Like the way some people listen to podcasts. I can hear an annoying voice right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's me. No, it's you. Ah, oh, well, I was going to say. both of us. Well, it's the one in your head and it's the one that I'm, it's coming out of my mouth hole. Bah. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of annoying. A magistrate awarded the family more than 11 grand in damages for the harassment they'd suffered at Kaza's hands. Damn, Kaza, you need to get a hobby or something. But Kaza did not get a hobby. Instead, she appealed the ruling and Judge O'Sullivan, Sully, reversed the decision and ordered that neither party should be paid damages. Sully said that although Kaza's harassment had been relentless and stupid, her making complaints to the council did not technically constitute a nuisance worthy of damages. I think the cockatoo should sue Kaza for defamation, don't you reckon? I reckon the judge should bang their heads together. I absolutely think Sully uh, needs to get himself a cockatoo. Now, look, I wonder if the family has found a way to teach the cockatoo to swear loudly at Kaza by now. Fuck you, Kaza! Fuck off, Kaza. Fuck off! Ah! 
neighbour sucks. Dumb bitch. I mean, probably not because otherwise Kazza would complain about that too. She but would. you'd think they'd want to, right? Yeah, that'd be front page news. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a cracker, Aussie as. If you would like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Particularly the subscribing. Now you can follow our Facebook page or join our group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And on Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, Bloody Murder Podcast, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thanks for listening and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. So the other day I was walking Poppy in the morning and uh, we were walking down some stairs under a bridge. There were no trolls, more's a pity. Uh, but a whole bunch of school kids came running along and they were coming down the stairs after us. Like there were a couple in front and they were freaking Poppy the fuck out. We got to the bottom of the stairs and I was trying to just pull her along, pretty much just run her out of there. And instead she just looked at me and she was like, now is not the time to run, Tara. Now's the time to turn and fight. And she just started going ballistic at the two kids that were on the stairs that were out in front. Like, they're teenagers. They were my height. Um, and I could tell she was just going to me like, you know, we, we can't outrun them, but if we, if we stand here at the bottom of the fucking stairs, we can pick them off as they come down one by one. You got me? And, um, of course, the kids freaked out a bit and I told them to back off because they were freaking out my dog and then we scampered uh, off. But uh, I really enjoyed her spirit. She's got a lot of fight into her. She yeah. was like, we can't outrun them, Tara. Not on your fat legs. Well, but yeah. maybe we can fight them off. Well, I like uh, you told me a story the other day. You know how most dogs go under beds or under couches when there's thundering lightning? Yeah. Your dog barks at the thunder and lightning. She gets... She will take it on. She will take on four. She will. She was thoroughly pissed the other day. There was a thunderstorm. And so she was sitting on the bed with me and she just sat bolt upright, put her head in the sky and started like growling and barking, well, at the lightning and thunder. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. She was like, don't fuck with me. I will end you. Uh, For a girl dog, she's got a lot of balls. Oh, yeah. Big lady balls. Just the way I like it. Don't don't fall victim to the fuck-eyed monkey, Barney. Oh. What? <laughs> it's too late, what, isn't it? What is the fuck-eyed monkey? Oh, well, trust me, I can tell. You'll can know, t- it's oh, on your back. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't see it, but I can. Oh, Look no. it over your shoulder, it's waving at me with its butt. Great, I've got the fuck-eyed monkey on my back mm-hmm. again. It is not a fan of yours. You should see the things he's miming to me about you. Really? Yeah, he's doing a little monkey wank pointing at you. (laughs) (laughs) No! Yeah? No monkey wanks. Yeah, fuck-eyed monkey thinks you're a bit shit, Barney. (laughs) Well, the fuck-eyed monkey would be right. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not arguing. No, the fuck-eyed monkey's normally right. Can I shake your hand? No, you don't want to touch that? No, he said no, and now he's giving you the finger. I'm really surprised you can't feel all this happening. <laughs> it kind of feels weird. Fuck-eyed monkey. It's not real. <laughs> oh, the fuck-eyed monkey is very real. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't there. Johnny May's dumped body was found on October 11th by a group of people riding four-wheelers. Cars. I think they mean like ATVs. Oh, like motorbikes. Yeah. But with four wheels? Yeah, yeah. Four-wheel motorbikes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you should talk more about this. Yeah, I think we should too. Okay, I usually do- call them cars, but I guess we could call them four-wheelers. Yeah, but I wasn't talking about cars. Four-wheel, four-wheeling cars. I wasn't talking about cars, uh, was I? Well, were you? No, I wasn't. Right. 
Or I would have said cars, probably. Trolleys have four wheels. I wasn't talking about trolleys either. Right. Do you want me to re-say the Tricycles line? Tricycles don't. No, that would be a three-wheeler, Barney. Yeah, that's right. What about unicycles? <laughs> How many wheels do they have? <laughs> Fucking more than you. <coughs> Wheelless unit. I, I have a note. It says several leg hams. <laughs> I'm not sure what, what, the, what that's referring to. Several leg hams. Oh, well, it, it might become apparent. <laughs> I hope so. Sneaky Eddie would get his mates on the outside to get under Shay's car on the Sunday night and load it up with drugs and other contraband. <laughs> ah, including several leg hams? Yes. <laughs> See, I told you it would become apparent. I'm glad you knew. I didn't connect the two. <laughs> Let's eat these in honour of Ronnie, boys. And the big doors at Pentridge swung for him in 1972. Swung open? No, they just swung. <laughs> As in to swing. Oh, oh, they swung with him. He got a little randy with the big gates of Pentridge, did he? Is that why they pulled them down? Oh, God. Because everyone thought they were sexy. And oh, the... hey, baby. That's what the doors say every time they go, hey, baby. <laughs> <laughs> You're an idiot. I know. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, he probably enjoyed it more than you enjoyed that sentence. I hate you so much. <laughs> but you love hating me, so it makes you happy. It actually does, See? Yeah. It's yeah. helpful what I'm doing. Helpful. Very helpful. Yeah. It's like a hate fuck, but with no sex. Yeah. yeah that's Actually, it's a sexless hate fuck. That's our friendship. A sexless hate fuck. <laughs> it's also our podcast. Oh, yeah. Sex- it's a hate fuck. Sexless hate fuck for your ears. Should we, should we rename Bloody Murder to Sexless Hate Fuck? Well, what about Bloody Murder, a sexless hate fuck podcast? It's kind of catchy. <laughs> oh, that'll get us invited to talk at schools, won't it? It will. Primary schools <laughs> and kindergartens. <laughs> Well, boys and girls, do we have a story for you? It's about a sexless hate fuck <laughs> that's been going on for 20 years. Can anybody here tell me what a hate fuck is? <laughs> yes, Kevin? It's when you put your pee-pee in someone's eye. And they don't like it, but so, they do it anyway. Yeah, because you hate them. <laughs> Well, you're close, Kevin. Well, actually, about our podcast, it's when you do that in their ear. So very, very close, Kevin. Can we use that in our next promo, Kevin? Just sign this. Waiver. Waiver. (laughs) (laughs) I have one right here. She later identified the whining, squeaky voice of Edward Jockey Smith, hearing him say, Where's the money? Where's the safe? I know you have one. That was that. Beautiful, hauntingly beautiful. Oh, like horses and and ham and bins. <laughs> Where are your bins and your ham? Oh, my favourite things if I'm riding a horse and I could steal a bin full of hams. <laughs> that's like my dream day. Oh, if I get to pull a gun on a cop, that's nice too. Named public enemy number one, a task force was established to bring Eddie in, dead or alive. Do you think he felt a bit special when that happened? Like, oh, yeah. I'm so important. Oh, look at this, Val. My picture's <laughs> in the front paper, front of the paper. Oh, no, you like gangsters. Well, check me out. I know I've already had dinner, Val, but can I have some ham? <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
I think Val would have a deep voice, a woman's deep voice. Oh, you don't want to get too fat to ride the horses again, do you, jockey? Do you, Ed? Don't talk to me like that, Val. You know that's a sore point. <laughs> Look, I'm just looking out for you, buddy. Hey, because I love you. Because I love Kiss me on the mouth. Come oh, on. God. Here's a stare <laughs> <laughs> What the fuck is wrong with You're us? You're such a good kisser, Val. <laughs> what is wrong with us? Oh, thanks, Jockey. I like practice on the horse. Hey, let's go and rob some banks together. Oh, I don't like doing that. That's your job. I to stay at home, look after the horses and the ham and the bins. All right, then. I'll bring back a few more bins, eh? Pick up a couple more hams too, will you? Oh, yeah, we'll put them in the bins. <laughs> Even I'm confused by us today. No, I love it. I love it. <laughs> I'm not saying I dislike it. I just think it's... How would one explain it to humans? <laughs> in the Sydney beachside suburb of Bondi, in the bin... In the spinny bit better or the bombay. What the fuck was that? They had they had the intercom on in the room and they kept lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since nineteen ninety seven. 